How to talk to your neighbors about cover crops and still remain friends. Uh, that last part there may be uh, important for some of you, uh, maybe not for others, uh, but when you live in a community, I think we all want to be friends with those around us. Uh, and the topic of cover crops sometimes can be somewhat contentious, maybe not so much anymore because they have certainly found their way to be a part of even, I could say, mainstream agriculture. At least they're working their way into mainstream agriculture, so it's no longer just the crazy guys are doing it. Uh, but this topic, I think, is very important because uh, we all know that cover cropping is not something that is easy. It's not something that you could just do with very little forethought. So when your neighbor does talk to you or when, or when you're talking to your neighbors and when a topic comes up, what do you say? What are, what are some things that are helpful? What do you focus on? What do you avoid? All these things are, are, are very important. And uh, what I want to cover today is partly, I'll call it the psychology of cover cropping, um, but also some of the practical ways too. So I want to give you a little bit of, a, of my view, my literal view. This is from my farm facing west. Um, now, when let's let's start talking about three different farmers here that are my neighbors, obviously. So the, my closest neighbor, ironically, and this is the height of ironic, he lives on the farm on the left-hand side there, and there is no way he will ever plant cover crops. Uh, he's certainly seen what I have done for the past 25 to 30-some years, but he's in his low 70s now, never, ever planted a cover crop, uh, full-scale tillage up until a couple years ago. But in spite of the fact that I travel around the world and speak about cover crops and do consulting about cover crops, he has never once asked me anything about them. But I got to tell you, we're still friends. So that's probably the most uh, uh, extreme example right there. And I wanted to let you know that I understand that there is a reality of what people think about cover crops and how that could impact your relationship. Now, in the middle there, in the distance, is an Amish farmer. And up until a year ago, I would have said he was not interested in cover crops. But he contacted me one year ago and asked, started asking me some questions. Now, I knew right away that he really didn't know very much about cover crops. He did know that oats was a good one, and he said, there's another one, and he said, I think it's, thinks it's called hairy something. And I said, yeah, that'd be hairy vetch. Yeah, that's it, that's it. So he said, now, one of them is a legume, right? I said, yes. He goes, which one? Now, the fact that someone asked that question, is oats a legume or is hairy vetch a legume, you know, right away tells me that uh, he doesn't know a whole lot. Well, of course, I didn't belittle him about that, but I just took that opportunity to explain to him. And, and he was asking what I thought he should do to plant no-till tobacco. Uh, so he's a very good farmer. I will tell you that, a very good farmer. 
He did sell his cows out a couple years ago, probably a good idea in the current dairy economy. He had one of the best milking herds in the area. So here's a good farmer, interestingly enough, knew very little to nothing about cover crops. This late summer, about two months ago, he contacted me. He said he'd like to try cover crops. Could I come over and plant some for him? We went over and planted 12 acres of cover crops. We did two things. We did one, two acres that he's going to try to no-till. And the other 10 acres, he's going to grow a cover crop and then plow down, which is what he's familiar with. So progress. But I'll tell you, it took, it took you know, a little time there for that to happen. Now let's move over to the right. Another Amish neighbor, very good farmer. He moved there, I'm guessing about 15 years ago. His brother had been in the community about two to three years sooner, and he lives directly to the right off the picture. He moved from an area of our county here that was pretty much full tillage. Came down here in my area, saw what I was doing, talked to me about it, and almost instantly started using no-till and cover crops. So his brother moved in, and he they they um, started using no-till. And there's a really really fascinating story about this. That farm there on the right hand side was 140 acres when it was bought. If you know anything about the Amish, they can handle about 70. So the intention was they were going to split the, the fields and put up another set of buildings for another farm. But because of no-till and cover crops, the fact that they could farm more land and that his brother only had 50 acres, between the two of them, they decided to keep all the land and they've been farming all of that land because of no-till and cover crops. That's a pretty cool story, I think. And it's ironic when you look at my neighbors, the differences that you see there. And those guys have asked me about no-till cover crops. They've talked to me, uh, and they've been they've been uh, very easy to to work with. So I think that right there is is an, is exactly what a lot of us experience. And um, the farm on the left there that will need a generational change. Now his son, who is around forty-five. Is, uh, wasn't really allowed to, or given the opportunity, I should say, to be uh, to, to, to work on the farm. So he did his own business of uh, house remodeling. But he still had an active interest in the farm. And he's told me on two occasions, he said, when my dad is no longer able to farm and I can farm, he said, I want to talk to you because I see what you do. I want to farm like you do. So that will take a generational change right there, which is kind of like the most extreme version other than just selling the farm to someone else. So just a little bit of background in that. Now, again, it's important to understand a few things when we're talking to people and talking to our neighbors. One of it, and you've heard this before, you might've seen this slide a couple times, but it's so important that cover cropping is a simple concept. I don't think there's anybody who would say that it's not a good concept. There's general agreement on that. The kicker is, it's very complex to be successful. And that complexity generally, generally is associated with management because farmers simply just haven't had the experience and knowledge to know how to manage cover crops. And 
I always say you need to embrace a new level of management if you're going to make cover crops work. So this is something that is a foundation, and I think you need to uh, base some of your um, your conversations on. And when you start talking uh, and, and, and phrasing your conversation this way, you're going to get more receptivity. So I want to talk about the psychology of talking about cover crops. Uh, and I, I don't want to sound like a professor here, but uh, there's some key things to know. Number one, are they receptive or not? I'll just tell you, for me, if someone's not receptive, it's a waste of my time. Uh, I have so many other people that want to know that I don't spend any time with someone who just doesn't have the time of day, so to speak, uh, for it. I talked about my neighbor who never used cover crops. Uh, the only thing I did proactive is invited him to come to my field days to drive a tractor for one of the wagons and the wagon tours that went around the field days, which was interesting. He seemed to really enjoy that. Uh, so that was my most proactive thing I did. It didn't change anything about what he did, even though he heard the speakers and everything about it, the cover crops. Uh, but if someone is receptive or not, it's going to have to be up to you. It depends if you're if you're more of a, a person who wants to really uh, you know, spread the message far and wide, if you will, uh, and are we have we have different personalities and, and how we re relate to people. I understand all that. But from my point, uh, I would highly recommend don't waste your time, you know, badgering someone or you will lose that friendship. Uh, that's just common knowledge for anything in life in a relationship. So if they are receptive, then uh, I always like to gauge uh, that. Um, and, and I want you want to be yourself in this, and uh, you know, don't put on this some sort of professor or research researcher type uh, or about the way you talk. But you know, you just want to be yourself. Sometimes people forget that they get in, they kind of get into this little rant, uh, if you will. Don't do that. Um, just just be yourself. I think that's important. Look for shared agree agreement. Um, and and you know your neighbors. Um, there there may be some things that. Maybe you saw them try something uh, and you say, hey, I saw you. Look, was that a cover crop you planted back there? How did you do that? You know, take up the conversation uh, fr from there. Um, don't don't call them up during a rainstorm and say, hey, uh, I see your soil's all washing away. You want to talk about cover crops? Probably not effective. Uh, so you have to look for those opportunities. If you want to if you do indeed want to share about cover crops, sometimes you just have to look for those ideas. And then what problems are they trying to solve? You know, um, you might have a neighbor who, who will be very honest and say, we lost a lot of soil in that rain. Uh, I know you're doing cover crops. What, what do I need to know about that? Well, the door's wide open for a conversation like that. That's really easy. But even in those times, don't take advantage of that and take it beyond what it is appropriate. Um, I used I usually try to be very very sensitive to where people are at, what they know, uh, and and of course not be disparaging. Um, everything I'm telling you here is probably not new. It's just that sometimes those of us who have done this, we get so passionate, we forget we forget to be uh, reasonable and rational, especially with our neighbors. You know the people we live with. You know you you want to foster that community. The other thing that I think is very important is to see this as a long-term conversation. 
this is where I think we get into the moment. You have an opportunity and you're going to like hit them with both barrels. Uh, that may be appropriate if they're interested, if they have time. You can sense that. Uh, and see it as a long-term conversation. So I like to use the, you know, kind of the analogy, you got to set the table. You have to give them an appetizer for more. Allow them to ask you questions. Don't just dominate and act like you're the expert. Uh, I'm I'm annoyed by people when they do that to me. Um, I mean, I've had people come to me um, and, and just with other products or something, and they're just like, it's the best thing that ever happened to them, and I have to try this. And I'm like, yeah, it's good, but I'm thinking in my mind, you know, yeah, that's a good thing, but I'm not interested right now. I got too many other things, you know, on my plate and so forth. So you got to be sensitive to that. But see it as a long-term conversation since it's your neighbor. And there'll be other times to talk. And and then I've already, uh, when the door is open, I thought of something later on. And then when I saw them, I said, hey, you know, we were talking about this. Hey, I just heard you might want to try um, you might want to try this technique or or something like that to keep the conversation going. So you got to look for those opportunities um, in, in that. So the next aspect I want to cover is, is that, that was kind of like a psychology, but how to effectively talk about cover crops. And, and I've been alluding to that, but I, I'll just tell you, you already know this probably, but the one of the biggest questions is, do they pay? Especially for new people, getting in, that is the question to ask. That's the question I asked back in 1995. And that led me to where I am today. I no longer ask if they pay. Yes, I can I continue to analyze and count my costs and everything. But you need to have an answer for that. That's what I'm getting out here. When someone says, but do they really pay? Cover crops are great, but do they really pay? And there's a couple different ways you can go. Um, one analogy that I have felt that has worked well is um, uh, you, you kind of lead lead up to a few questions, but just to say that well, it is difficult to, to uh, first of all acknowledge that that uh, that seeing if cover crops pay or not or experiencing is difficult. Acknowledge that. Don't just say, "Oh yeah, they pay." I know they pay. Don't just say that. Say yes. That is a challenge that we are all looking for. But with the momentum that cover crops is doing now in the world, there, there must be something there. Notice I didn't say that they pay. Never make that statement um, unless, unless there's a reason to, because it's, it's just not helpful. What you say is there seems to be evidence that they pay, even though we can't sometimes see it all in dollars and cents. Use the term, it's an investment. That may seem a little cheap because we kind of all know that, but it is. Sometimes you have to remind people that. And, um, you know, I, I will say things like a year like this, and, and those of you who were on before, we were chatting, it's a very, very wet year here where I live in southeastern Pennsylvania. Do cover crops pay? Absolutely they do. I've, I've, um, my even even though I have suffered yield loss from my squash and my pumpkins because of the extreme wet conditions, it's not near those who were tilling and those who were not using cover crops. So cover crops paid me many many times over this year, 
And I can use that as a personal from a personal experience. So it's just the way you say it, um, the way you share your personal experience. Uh, and again, if you have a personal experience, just share that and don't be dogmatic about it. Um, you, you know, you, when you say you look at your soil, you can see a difference in the soil. And if you've ever done any infiltration tests, if you've ever done any testing, you know, you can share that, but never in a dogmatic way, because there could be a time where you may not be able to back that up because we know that every year is different. Some years you can experience cover crops there there. You can you can see their payback clearly other years. You cannot. <clears throat> the other thing I would encourage you is to help your neighbors think that cover cropping is a long term investment. I talked about investment. But when you say something like, if you, you should really think about cover crops in a, as a 10-year plan. So if someone says, do cover crops pay, their mentality is one year. They want to see a payback in one year. That's where they're coming from. So again, another way to answer the question is, or to, to you, you, you answer the question with a statement, cover crops need to be analyzed in the context of at least a 10-year uh, plan or a 10-year run. Uh, not that you're not observing and and everything in the middle in the middle of that, but it's just a a good uh, and it's actually reality that it takes time sometimes to see their effect. One example I will use for conventional farmers that use herbicide traits or traded corn like uh, BT corn or or whatever traits you have is I'll just simply say and then this is if you get into the conversation where you're where now you're you're in a serious discussion. You, you could just say, so, you know, we all use traded corn, um, if, if that's what you use, or soybeans. Does that pay every year? And, and if you're honest, you could probably say it probably doesn't every year. But it generally must because we use it. Uh, we use it time and time again, uh, these traits. Um, I think those of us in the regenerative ag movement are questioning if they really are needed and if they do pay. But if you're talking to someone in a conventional mindset, um, and that's what their experience is, that's a good analogy to ask. So uh, the next thing there is how can they be used on their farm? You may lead into that when you're talking, if they open the door for that. And if they, I've, I've had conversations um, with my neighbors who have expressed interest. And I've, I've, as I alluded to earlier, I've come back later. So, you know, I was thinking about what you said the other day. And you might want to try this, um, you know, on your farm. Your your farm would be good to to try like a short season corn or something like that. Uh, just to, just to give them some advice uh, on on what you see, and also to encourage them to talk to others. It's not about you. Uh, you might say, hey, there's so and so. There's a farm. He's like like I'm not a dairy farmer, but I'll say, hey, there's a dairy farmer down there. Seems to be working out. Why don't you get talk to him sometime? So whenever you can bridge people together. Put them to put them in contact with someone else. You're going to remain their friend, and you're going to keep the conversation going. The other thing that's that's really really important, and I mentioned this up front, is that management is key. When you when you bring this up, when you say that the key to making cover crops pay is management, that cannot be refuted, and that is a very very not only a neutral. A conversation, but it, it's it's a way to get them to think that hey, 
if I'm going to manage, I need to know what I'm doing, so I need to get educated. So instead of saying you need to learn how to manage, you say management is key. So again, it's how you say these things that are really, really important. Now, if they, if someone's just new and they're just starting out and they're saying, you know, where should I start? Well, I'll just tell you the easiest before corn is radish and or oats if they can get it planted in time. And that, that would be the biggest challenge there. Um, but if they can, that's definitely the easiest or cereal rye before beans. Uh, so, so again, stress the easier thing to do first. Uh, and if they say, well, what about these multi-species mixes? Do you have to grow 18 different species? And my comment would be, no. Uh, what would you be comfortable with? What do you already know? And they might say, well, I've been checking into it and been thinking about it. And, you know, I always ask them what they're thinking first before I let my, uh, before I give them my advice. That is, that is one of the key things here, too, that's really important. To ask questions, where are they at? What are they thinking? So you see where this is going? Let them drive the conversation, if at all possible. Again, in the context of remaining friends, that's very, very important. Uh, now, if you're a salesman and you're selling cover crops, uh, that's going to be a little different. Maybe you'll be based more on facts, probably. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say here about easiest method is using shorter season genetics with both corn and beans, uh, that's one of the easiest things to do because it gives you, uh, it kind of addresses one of the biggest challenges in the fall of getting cover crops in on time. And unless you live, you know, in the northern climates, the shorter season genetics on 5% of your acres, 10%, whatever that is, is a good tactic to suggest. Um, so um, just, just saying that's the kind of like tools in your toolbox here. When you're uh, when you're discussing this, and I have to put in here to treat your cover crops like your cash crops. Um, those of you familiar with my speaking, I always have this slide in, and um, this is something you say toward the end of the conversation. It's irrefutable, and and what I like to say is just think of your cover crops like your cash crops. If you treat them that that way, you're you stand a good chance of success. That's the words I use. Um, treat your cover crops like your cash crops. If you do that, you stand the best chance of success. And that kind of puts it back on them. Um, it's again, it's something that's irrefutable, but it's not argumentative. It 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 gives it makes them think. So that's a that's a key line that you can use there. Now, a few practical things just as we wind up here, and then I'll open it up for questions uh, and comments. Uh, again, I, I listed some several things about ease of cover crops, but here's thing, so, something that I found kind of gets their attention. Uh, and again, if you know your neighbor and you said, you know, you got that 24-row planter, you know, you can plant cover crops for that. There's seed discs out there that you can use. And um, you can actually cut your seeding rates down because you're doing such a good job putting the seed in the ground and you guys get plates to singulate seeds like radishes and peas. And now you can even get plates that can plant mixes. So this is for those larger farmers who may not have a drill or have had not had success with uh, aerial seeding or something like that. This is just a practical thing to add. And this really gets their attention because that machine's only used probably 10 days out of the year. And uh, if they can bring that out and use it, I've, I've know, known of numerous farmers who 
this is really kind of what tipped them into uh, doing, uh, uh, getting into cover cropping. The other thing that's coming to head now is weed control with cover crops. That's another issue, especially the herbicide resistant weeds that are everywhere almost. Um, if they're not in your area, they will be probably. Uh, this is something where cover crops, especially cereal rye before beans, is very effective. And it's one of those things where it's really nice if a farmer can have a good first year experience with cover crops. So you're setting them up for success by doing this. And um, you know, it's just a it's just a practical idea that you can that you're able to share. So uh, I'm sure there's some other things out there that you guys are thinking about. And I'd love to hear them here. Uh, but having beans planted in cereal rye is one of the easiest things to do. And then then you look like a hero because uh, it's it's probably going to work with very little new management needing to uh, take place. So quick review here, um, that, and, and again, I would love to hear any reaction, um, any comp comments you have, but um, this is just some of the things I tried to get across today. I think um, I don't have management again here on this list, but the whole idea of conveying that it's management is, that is success or failure, not so much the concept. Try to deflect that. We know the concept works now. We can say that because it's been used so many areas. The, the, the guys who are making it work, it's because of the way they manage it. So that puts it back on them. Do they want to embrace that or not? If they don't want to embrace management, you're just wasting your time um, talking to them. So I'm going to open up the lines here. i uh, love to hear questions, comments, or, further, or any experiences from anybody uh, in, in their successes in trying to talk to your neighbors about cover crops and still remain friends. So who will be first? Hey, Steve, this is Jen. Um, I'm wondering, would you um, give the same set of tips or would you tweak it at all for talking to landowners about uh, cover crops? Well, um, I think we did have a topic on that previously. My, my reaction to that is a lot of it would be the same, but you're going to have to stress more their their asset, their soil, their land, which is the same for a farmer who owns their land. But yeah, a lot of the things are the same. Um, I, I would just say uh, one effective, if you can do this, if the landowner is actually in the area or they're coming back to the area to, to physically walk out there, either show them their fields, what you're doing in the fields, or on your fields, what, what you've accomplished um, is a very, very helpful thing to do. So the answer is yes, a lot of these things. And then you have to tweak everything I just said to each individual. Um, and that's just, you know, you, you have to know your people on this kind of thing. Uh, I think that's a lot of it of it here, Jens. But um, so a lot of the things are the same. A lot of it could be crossed over. Um, but, you know, they're, they're thinking more not so much on a annual, you know, profitability basis on related to the cash crop. They're thinking on more of a long-term um, um, maintaining and enhancing their investment, which is the land. And that's what you want to probably stress a little bit more. And there's nothing better than cover crops. And I'll say no till most situations to, to increase the value of their land. Um, 
you know, I, I really think we will start to see. I honestly feel that we're going to start to see some good no-till cover crop farms bring more money when they come up for auction uh, because it's it's there. Um, so, so I don't know. Is that is that helpful? Do you have anything to add? Yeah. Um. Well, I guess yeah. It, it's helpful, and I think um, one thing that I've heard that. You know, I don't know how much it rolls into this. I know it overlaps with the other uh, webinar that you had, but like, you know, trying to convince a landowner maybe um, that you're running from not to rent it out from under you and kind of, you know, to somebody who's going to pay more but blow up, right? you know, all the good work that you've done. Yep. It happens. It happens. I I know um, uh, most of you know of David Brandt from Ohio. He shared how the, his one of his landlords called him up and said, hey, my, your other neighbor's trying to rent this land out from underneath you. And, and he knew the reason why, exactly what you said, because it had been no-till for a while. Mm-hmm. And if you till that up, you're going to get you know release of, of nutrients that have been like stored there. And you, the first year or two, it, it can be actually advantageous from a strictly short-sighted viewpoint. But then David took this guy out and showed him the field. He took him out with a shovel and showed him what the soil was doing, showed him the earthworms. And then I thought this was cool. He said he planted a multi-species mix that included sunflowers. And for every Monday, he said for four weeks straight, I took him and his wife a bouquet of sunflowers. <laughs> you talk about a little investment of time right there. A great idea. On a, on a, on a, you, know, you, you can have all the facts in the world, but feelings enter in. And then, that, you know, that's a part of the whole deal. And uh, I just thought that was a pretty cool example of, uh, of, of taking care of your, your, you know, your, you know, watching out for yourself by watching out for your landowner. So okay. other questions or comments? Well, I'll just put in a comment then. Yeah, Scott. Um, just that it is definitely a long-term conversation because I've been talking to, one of my uh, big agronomy clients quite a few years on it and there's never really been a response and then they just continue on with normal but uh, I had a, one of them say well you're educating me on these cover crops and maybe we should try something so you know it's uh, it does take a long time and they're and they are in the older generation so I can, sure. I can kind of see it that you know they're probably <clears throat> Well, one thing I'll say, one thing I'll mention on that, Scott. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I had thought about it but didn't write it down. Farmers now are primed like never before because of the widespread media attention, the widespread scale now of cover cropping. I mean, it's, it's continuing to grow, so farmers are primed. It's it's we passed the kook stage, we passed the crazy guy stage. It's not just the crazy guys that are doing it, um, and so that does make it easier. It makes the makes your conversation a little bit more easier. So I will say that farmers are primed. I I just give you another example. Literally, I told you I told you in my presentation about this one Amish neighbor. I had another Amish neighbor contact me in the last week, and he's he's a really nice jovial type guy. We like to joke around and stuff. And you know, he says, Steve, I know you like to no-till, but I just like to plow. He said, there's just something about plowing that I just enjoy. And I, I know him well, and I said, well, Abe said, I just like to plant. I get the same, the same feelings out of planting as you probably do plowing. 
and we laughed. Well, you know what? One week ago, he said, and this this is coming off a very, very wet year we've had around here, a lot of heavy rains. He said, Steve, I got to change. I got to do something. He said, you know, I told you I like to plow. He said, I got to figure this out. I was literally blown away. I was surprised. Uh, I did not think I would have that. So he said, Some, sometime this winter, he said, can you come over? I'd like to talk to you. I'm like, wow, that that's that's really cool, okay? Uh, but, but I never made fun of him. I never did. We just joked about it. I didn't, you know, and, and here it is. The, the opportunity is open now for me to talk to him. The door is open. And, and I'll, again, see, uh, you know, like I said, I'll practice what I preached here. I'll just say, well, so what do you want to accomplish, Aid? What are you thinking here? Rather than I just go in and bombard him with all kinds of data and statistics. Uh, that never works unless they ask for it. Then you do it. So, uh, again, I'll just reiterate. I think one of the most important things is here is you, you ask where, what, where they're coming from, what they want to know, and then take them to that point and then make suggestions after you've gained their trust. Um, I'd like to hear from anybody else who's had a positive experience, um, you know, talking to their neighbors. Uh, and, and, and has anybody anybody have a positive experience or a negative experience as well? But uh, anyone have a story they'd like to share? Yeah, this is Lloyd. Can yes, you hear Lloyd. me? Yes, yeah, I'm on, a, I'm on a headset. Uh, you know, you met Jack and uh, yes, he's, a, he's a one year response guy. Uh, he'll switch back as pro and con uh, as you speak. But the thing I found was the guys like myself, I'm retired air military. I grew up on a farm, but I went off in the military. I come back and I'm trying new and different things. Uh, the kids I went to school with, you know, close to my same age or what have you, that stayed at home on the farm, they are so resistant to everything. I mean, mm. grandpa didn't do it that way. Pap didn't do it that way. And mm. by God, I'm not going to do it that way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, Lloyd, I, I was impressed that you, when you came to visit me, you brought, what, your neighbor? And well, who was the other guy you brought? Uh, uh, my nephew. Your nephew, yeah. So yeah. so how did that come about? Why did they come along with you? Uh, I told him I was going over to get seed, and uh, <laughs> you, you, you were the cover crop uh, guru, and uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was an opportunity to uh, pick your brain. Right. And, and, and uh, uh, now my nephew... Uh, he, you know, he grew up on the farm and I mean, he's been resistant every step of the way. And when I took over, I said, okay, we're going to try this, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, we, we went from conventional to no-till. Well, we, you know, that was some of the best crops we ever had. Well, you know, prior to that, you know, you're crazy. You're, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. And then we started, uh, uh, planting mono cover crops mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and then, you know, it, it was kind of, well, if we got around to it, we got around to it. But if we didn't, we didn't, you know, did, yeah. it wasn't, you know, no big deal. Well, then uh, we did that cocktail one year and, mm -hmm. you know, we had almost 100 bushel uh, difference in corn yield mm -hmm. uh, in that one strip. And uh, now he's a believer. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I'll just commend you, Lloyd, for doing that, for convincing your neighbor who is, is, is little still on the fence to take a half a day's time. You brought him along. And yeah, that's that. Not everybody would do that either. Yeah, all, all winter long, all winter long, I've been shooting him uh, YouTube videos and uh, whatnot that uh, uh, 
to kind of get him to jump over. But, I mean, uh, he surprised me in January. Uh, he had an older John Deere corn planter, and they wanted uh, big money to rebuild it. He said, go find me a good used corn planter twin row because mm -hmm. that's what I was doing. And mm -hmm. uh, so I found him a corn uh, twin row corn planter. And uh, uh, I said, you got to put, uh, you know, Don Logic rollers on that to okay. uh, roll your cover crop down. Oh. And he went out and put them on. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. You better hope yeah. they work that, right? <laughs> well, uh, I, I used his corn planter to plant oh. all my uh, all my corn and soybeans. And, and then uh, he wanted to test some uh, seven and a half inch rows with my planter. So uh, okay. we kind of wor worked together and planted everything. Okay. Good. Sounds like you're um, you're you're doing a little thing there. That's good. Other people, uh, stories or questions or comments. This is good. I appreciate the stories because uh, my uh, this is John um, yes. Southwest Ohio. My neighbor's tired of uh, cleaning out his ditch from uh, another neighbor who's where <laughs> our bottom ground is an old swamp and and um, um, and then the, the water flows really slow through it. But there's some. Um, uh, glacial uh, till uh, hills around it where people love to till and every two or three years he's got to get in there with a track hoe and clean it out and he's he's um, uh, tired of that and then he knows that I've got clear water coming off my my field so um, sometimes all we can do is uh, is set a good example and and um, you know be receptive to people's questions and and that you know, people don't like to be pushed one, th one thing that I do here, I have uh, solar panels. We put in a photovoltaic system. It's a, a hundredth of an acre, and it yep. produces all my energy. Mm -hmm. Just just think about so that's seventy. It's a seventy-five. Uh, it's a seven-point-five kW system. Uh -huh. Just think of that spread out over an acre. How much energy mm -hmm. that, that is. So when you're when our fields are green in in November. Uh, I can show them the app on my phone where I'm making all this electricity and you can, can and you can use um, an idea like that to say, hey, look how much energy and, and carbon and everything we're getting into our soil. And, and that, so that, that's a useful thing I find. Well, that's interesting. I never I never put that analogy together. I'm going to mute you there, John. It's not going. Uh, I never put that analogy together, but John, thanks for sharing that. That that's that that kind of can tell you, you know, what the power of the sun is. Yeah, it works pretty pretty good. I um, I, I and I put the 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 panels right out in the curb, you know, by the farm here, for two reasons. One, I didn't want to build it up on the roof, and it was real good for demonstrations. We can just walk over and talk to it. Awesome. Uh, just checking here. Uh, my neighbor, John Johnson. Uh, I'm trying to figure out who's uh, John Johnson. Do you have any comments on this? Uh, yeah, I know you farm a lot of land and and so forth around here. Any comments on how to still remain friends with your neighbors talking about cover crops? Hey, I try not to be pushy. Yeah. Uh, as has been said before, you know, I try to set an example. Mm -hmm. My example is not always the best sometimes. doesn't work yeah. out quite the way we had planned, but uh, yeah. normally uh, it has. And, uh, you know, I like to lead by uh, example, not uh, by a lot of verbiage. Right. Yeah. No, that's 
there's certainly a time that that's certainly key. And then how much verbiage you use is kind of sometimes up to the individual and personality and everything that goes with that. Um, I wouldn't mind for Jim Johnson to weigh in, if you could. Jim Johnson from uh, Oklahoma. Uh, you know, you get around a lot, Jim, if you're if you're able to. Um, uh, any comments or stories you've heard or just what what are you thinking? Oh, you've preached a pretty good message. I don't know that I can add much to it. Okay. Good. Well, thank you. Um, um, just going, uh, anyone else, Don Donovan or Dan Towery, uh, wouldn't mind hearing a little bit more perspective here, and then we'll wrap this up. Well, I guess this, Don, I, I would just kind of reiterate that you don't want to be pushy and that, that people are watching you all the time, and you may not think they're changing their mind. Uh, and then number one, that that your your closest neighbor, you may not have the impact that somebody else from somewhere right. else might have on them. Oh, that's very good. I'm glad you said that. I, I, whenever I give these presentations, I always pick up some more stuff from you guys. So uh, that's exactly right. It's it's kind of like even in your family. Sometimes you can't influence the people closest to you more than other people can just because of stuff and history and everything um so that's good i'm jotting that one down here for sure i'll have to add that so um yeah uh mr towery you have any comments efficiency for everybody okay uh bob betts our welch's grape grower bob what do you have to say well there about four or five years ago there was three of us in our grape belt that started planting something besides just ryegrass uh -huh. and every year you see more and more vineyards go into it yeah so i just I, found out well go ahead bob finish that up but i think it's like you say they just watch and see what you're doing and then i'll try that yeah yep yeah so bob grows for welch's grape juice i think that's pretty cool uh he sent me a video that i'm going to try to post on the facebook group uh, of him harvesting grapes at night. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, so even grape growers sometimes got to work at night. Uh, but that's neat, that that machine you have that picks the grapes. That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Um, we pick a lot of – there's probably more grapes picked at night than there is during the day. Is there is there a specific reason for that? Well, the factory receives grapes 24 hours a day, and it's a – Okay, a, okay. Uh, the crop will go bad if it sets out in the right. sun too long. Sure. So you so got to oh. yeah. So you got to pick them and get them right to the factory. And today's lights too. Sometimes it's better to pick at night than during the day because the lights are so bright. And that's something. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. I'll try to get that video on the Facebook group uh, oh, yeah. later on. Okay. Any other comments from anybody else? I just want to say that next week. Um, our next our topic for next week is how late is too late to plant cover crops and even though we were on a trajectory here back in august to be early and some some people have been that's been slowed dramatically because of the wide scale wet weather we've had so um i'll just tell you that i've planted cover crops every month of the year and had them grow uh it doesn't happen all the time but uh i'll just leave you dangling with that uh, but there is some things to consider. So that's our topic for, for next week. And just to wrap up here, is there any other cover crop question that anybody has?
uh, today that's either concerning our topic or anyone any other question at all you wanted to you wanted to ask while we're on the on the call. Steve, this is Don, and, and I just mm-hmm. got to listen to your your webinar on uh, on mixing wheat varieties. Oh yeah, yesterday. yeah. Um, and I got a, and I don't. I'm just. I got got me to thinking. You know, is there a possibility that if you mix the varieties that that a plant closely associated with the variety of another a plant with another variety that they could cross their traits between them? I, I you know if, if if it was resistant to a rust, would that plant next door be able to, you know, be able to get uh, that tray? I don't know uh, the answer to that, Don. I'm not a plant breeder. Anybody on here? Anybody on here have an answer to that? Um, go ahead, Jim. I guess it's possible, but. Uh, Usually, disease resistance is multi-gene. At least in wheat, wheat has a has a very complex genome, and so it's going to be multi-gene. And so, the odds of getting all the genes transferred in one breeding event in the field are pretty low. But if it did happen, yeah, then your seed would have that in future generations. Hmm. Well, interesting question, Don. Um, uh, by the way, on a side note. I in that video in that webinar, you know, I listed what I'm in, what I was intending to do, and I'm still going to do it. I'm just a week late. Um, the drill is loaded, but my drill's been loaded, uh, ready to go. But I couldn't plant; it's been too wet. I think we'll have to wait another day or at least another day yet before we can get it in the ground. So I had intended to plant it last week. Uh, now I'm 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 actually. I guess you'd say some of the legumes that are in there, depending depending on our fall, I'm not sure if it's going to be worth it or not. But I'm going to do it. The drill's loaded, um, so didn't get it out like I thought. But welcome to 2018 in our world here. Um, it's just the way it has been. So, any other questions anybody have or comments about any cover crop question there is? Okay, well, thanks for your good questions, your good attention today, and I look forward to seeing you next week, um, and have a great week.